Hey guys, welcome to my podcast. My name is William Walker, and this show is all about trailblazers and how these leaders and visionaries broke new ground, challenged conventional thinking, and inspired others to follow in their footsteps. After all, Jesus was a trailblazer. So how do we, as men, live a life as trailblazers and become the leaders we are called to be? Welcome to another episode of the Trailblazer Podcast, where we celebrate men who are making a difference in their world. I'm your host, William Walker, and today we have the CEO of Five Capitals and my friend, Tim Ermson. Tim is the founder and CEO of, has been the founder and CEO of a global market research firm based in Cincinnati, and has also built a lasting legacy working with Fortune 500 companies around the world, helping them innovate for growth. With a strong aversion to apathy and complacency, Tim has spent his life developing leaders across the marketplace through a comprehensive skill set based in emotional intelligence and strategic thinking. But what I like most about him, other than just he's a great guy, is the fact that he has an amazing personal vision statement, and that is to add value to every life my life intersects. Welcome to the show, Tim. Yeah, thanks, William. Good to be here, man. This is awesome. Here we go. When someone reads that to you, isn't it? It's kind of weird, man. It's uh. Yeah, it's kind of like listening to yourself talk or watching yourself speak or those kind of things. It's just yeah. it gets awkward and uncomfortable. So appreciate that. It's awesome. <laughs> so, hey, look, in Corey's, I literally started reading from his book. And he was like, that's, <laughs> that's just weird. I'm sure, he loved that. That was good. But I, I mean, and I just think it's it gives people an outlook on who you are. And, and that's really the goal of this podcast is, and you know, I texted you earlier, um, I had this conversation with somebody the other day. I said, because I was really battling with, hey, do I need to make sure each one of these podcasts has these five bullet points to walk away with? Or, hey, this one new tool. And I'm like, you know what? I started this podcast just wanting to tell the stories of men who decided to live and lead their lives in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, And in a way that would create hope and challenge other men to go, hey, you know what? I can make just a small change in my life and really live my life different. That's going to have a, a huge impact, positive impact on my family, a positive impact on my professional life, um, a positive impact on the people around me and the life that I live. And and, and to me, that's that's living this. You know, I think the intro says like Jesus was a trailblazer, and it was really because of how he lived his life. I mean that and all the other things he did, but just how he lived. Anyway, enough about me. So so you've had uh, quite the career. I mean, I know that in your bio, it says that you've been doing this for over 24 years um, from CEO to founder, entrepreneur. I know that you've also been a a pastor. You know, you've had quite the diverse background of, of things over your career. What's been some yeah. of the things that really stood out, and, and and then we'll probably get back into like where you, where it all came from. Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I found out not that long ago that I'm a seven on the Enneagram. That explains all of this, right? It's it's uh, I love adventure. I love new things. Um, I, I love spending time with people who, uh, you know, who aren't afraid to take risks. You know, who aren't, and I'm just a serial entrepreneur. I mean, I, I don't know how else to describe it. I've started, you know, eight entities, um, whether that be a church or a business or whatever. And what's interesting about that is I love to kind of build them, grow them, you know, start them, build them, grow them, and then either pass them on to somebody to to continue to shepherd or, 
um, sell them uh, or whatever. It's it's a it's a constant thing for me. I get bored really easily, and sometimes that's a blessing. Sometimes that's a curse. Yeah. But um, but anyway, it's it's uh, you know they they there are people who live their lives that are just like one plus one plus one plus one plus one plus one plus one, and they keep going right, and that's the way it happens, and and it's a steady, you know that's just not me. And I used to apologize for it and I don't anymore because for me, it's like one plus one plus three minus two plus six minus five plus 16 minus four plus 20 minus 19. It's just, but somehow you end up in a place where at the end of your days, you look back at, at the legacy and you go, wow, what a, what a ride, man, what a ride this has been and what an impact. Uh, and I'm enjoying looking at that right now in my later years, let's call it that. Okay. I get that, man. I mean, I'm, I'm, I used to apologize for my career the same way when you looked at my resume, because it was, Hey, three, four years, next thing, three, four years. And now kind of knowing what I know as a coach and, and just later in years, I'm able to look back and kind of go after about four years, I built it up and kind of got everything working and, I mean, and it's not me patent. I'm not like all prideful doing it, but I was like, I'm bored now. I like to build. Yeah. Yeah. It's self-awareness. I mean, it all comes down to self-awareness. And obviously when we coach, that's what we work with our, um, the leaders that we coach. That's what we work on first is know thyself, right? If you don't know yourself, then you're not going to be effective at doing anything quite frankly. And when you know yourself, you can also learn to love yourself and appreciate yourself for the things that uh, the God, you know, how God made you and what, how he's wired you, which is unique, right? It's good. Definitely. Without a doubt, that is very, very true. I think that's a great segue to kind of talk into, hey, like, so where it all began for you, you know? I mean. Hmm. Yeah. So grew up in Cincinnati. Okay. <laughs> grew up in Cincinnati in a little suburb uh, north of Cincinnati. And this is an interesting part of my story is the neighborhood that I grew up in was a pri predominantly black neighborhood. So I was uh, I was the minor minority in the neighborhood I grew up in. Um, and so I have a different perspective on um, the differences in people and the perspectives that we carry and all that kind of stuff. And there's some things in the in the traditional sense that I don't understand about um, how we divide. And so, you know, how we're divided amongst each other, people say, well, it's because of this. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Right. And some, some ways that puts me at a disadvantage because I can't really join the conversation sometimes. But um, but it gave me a perspective uh, of the appreciation of just people and the diversity of people and the beauty of people and all that. And and uh, I had a dad who was a truck driver. So blue collar family. Um, dad was a truck driver. Mom was a stay at home mom. We didn't have a whole lot of money. We used to take vacations in our uh our meals in the car, we'd stop for lunch and we would do the economy lunch. My dad called it the economy lunch and we'd get a large fry at McDonald's <laughs> in the car and we would all share the large fry. And to me, that was something amazing. That was special. It was like, yeah, we're going to McDonald's and getting some fries. It's, it's incredible. So, um, so had a incredible family that I grew up with, um, you know, both parents stayed married, um, loved each other, loved us. Um, my dad was a big fan of consequential learning. And I don't know if anybody knows what that means, but essentially my dad never gave me a curfew, for example. Um, he just said, hey, you can stay out as late as you want, but just be at work at 6 a.m. in the morning with me out in the sun, putting these 
things together because later on he became a a guy who built idlers that conveyor belts roll on in coal mines. And so we would put those together out in the sun at 6 a.m. I stayed out till four in the morning my first Friday that he told me that. And uh, I felt so horrible the next day. I was probably in bed by 1030 every Friday night, with the exception of football season, um, just because I didn't want to have another day like that. So so dad with uh, consequential learning taught me a lot about leadership through action, not through words. Um, you know, a mom who was very caring, uh, very, uh, encouraging, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, the youngest of, uh, three, a brother that's seven years older and a sister that's five years older. And so, you know, the first kid, um, you're always like, you know, let's put them in pampers and sterilize the bottles and all that stuff. By the time you get to the third kid, it's kind of like, let's wrap them in newspaper and let them play in the street. It'll be fine. Um, that was me. And so, kind of had to forge my own way <laughs> get through all that stuff, which might explain why I'm wired the way I am, which is so much, much fun. So, um, yeah, so I, that's, that's kind of my upbringing in a nutshell. We, we had a lot of fun and my brother, um, love my brother to death. He's doing great now, but back in the day he got involved in some drugs and some other things. And I watched that relationship between he and my dad kind of deteriorate. And, uh, I just decided to go a different way. And so, you know, had nothing to do with that and uh just said i'm gonna have a lot of fun but i'm not gonna get involved in the drug scene or anything like that it's just too much too weighty yeah. so um that's probably where the responsibility came from was just watching that you know from afar uh he's fine now by the way he's doing great um and <laughs> married and all that kind of stuff so yeah but uh I don't know. That leads me up to high school. I was an athlete in high school, played three sports. Um, what sports you play? Uh, I played football, uh, wrestled, and baseball. Oh, man. Nice. Yeah. And I uh, was a quarterback in, in football. That was my sport. That was the one I loved the most. And actually, that's where I got introduced to the concept of leadership. So I'll tell you a really quick story. Um, it's, it's kind of fun. I was a uh, sophomore in, in high school. I was the, you know, and playing quarterback we're playing the number one team in the city uh, a, a school called molar um and we are undefeated they're undefeated and uh it's on our field and so we i i throw a pass we're on our 40 yard line i throw a pass out to the side guy catches he runs it all the way down to the end zone right before he crosses the line guy from molar punches the ball out from behind it goes in the end zone and they recover it so we don't score and they get a touchback and uh and I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm so, I'm so disappointed in this guy who fumbled the ball, whatever. And I come off the sideline, and the coach comes over to me, not the kid who fumbled. And he's got this big wad of tobacco in his lower lip, and he grabs my face mask, and he's like, what happened no, out there? Right? He's yelling at me, and all the spit's flying in my eyes and stuff. And I remember going, coach, that's not on me. I was a cocky, like, 14-year-old, right? I'm like, coach, that's not on me. That's not my issue. I didn't do it. I didn't fumble the ball. And he he looked at me and said something that I've not forgotten. I'm 55 now. He looked at me, he goes, you're the leader. It's always on you. And I went, hmm, that's going to stay with me the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and it's interesting when you look at Jim Collins and how he teaches about level five leadership, he said, level five leaders are leaders who give credit away when things go well and they take the blame. They own it when things don't go well for the entire team. That's what level five leaders do. And essentially his book, Good to Great, in a nutshell, it's great companies are led by level five leaders. Good companies are led by 
other leaders. Right. That's so good. And it's, and it's so true though. I mean, it really, really is, you know, I, mean, I, I, you know, I've, I've, I've got a couple different roles in my, in my, in where I'm at currently. And, and I see and walk through some of that on a regular basis, as well as have to own some of those things on a regular basis on my own, you know, Hey, look, this is what I did or this happened. And I had to look at it and go, well, I didn't give them the tools that they needed to, to get through to it. I have to ask myself, what did I not give them? Or what did they, what did you not get from me that you needed from me? Because this is my fault. It, yes, it happened. And yes, you were the one that it happened to, but it's my fault because I didn't do something that you needed to make sure you were successful. Um, right. And so that mantle. Okay. Leadership is yep. It's good stuff. Yeah. It was a lesson that was hard for me to learn for quite a while too, though. So I was <laughs> a cocky guy for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, I learned that at a very young age. And after that, everything kind of changed and uh, went on and had a really you know, good football career there. Um, you know, grew up and I didn't take the traditional route of, of college. Um, so I got a, a scholarship uh, from a, a thing called it was the WCKY as a radio station in Cincinnati. <laughs> it was called it's called uh, Student of the Month. And then it turned into student of the year, right? There were 12 recipients. And then I got the the one for the year. It was like $1,500. And their slogan was, sometimes a C is better than an A. <laughs> I said, wow. So, I mean, and so it was all built on, you know, being involved in things more than it was your grades and things like that, which by the way, I think we should do more of that actually, right? Because the real leaders are the ones who um, benefit out in the, in the, you know, get out, get out in the real world and kind of live this stuff out mm -hmm. um, as opposed to just live in the books. And so, um, of course, I'm saying that because I got that. But uh, uh, but anyway, I, I quickly um, lost that scholarship when I flunked out of college my first year um, at Toledo. I majored in, um, uh, let's just call it drinking and uh, partying uh, instead of going to class. I scheduled eight o'clock a.m. classes and then worked at Charlie's Blind Pig uh, every night. So you can't stay out till three in the morning and then go to eight o'clock classes. It's not going to work. So anyway, exactly. as a young, ignorant, um, freshman, of course, my dad, <laughs> this consequential learning just looked at me very calmly and said, yeah, you're not getting another dime out of me. And so, um, had to start paying for college myself at that point. Um, and it's funny when you have skin in the game, how much you take it more serious. So grad, you know, it took 11 years after that first year screw up of night school and weekend school and everything else to graduate. Uh, so I got my bachelor's and my master's from Xavier University after attending four other colleges to kind of make my way and decide who I wanted to be. Um, but got it, got a job at Procter & Gamble, started working there and learned a ton about leadership at Procter & Gamble. So um, I ask, what were you doing for those 11 years, man? <laughs> I got married and had kids. <laughs> I got married and had kids. I graduated with two kids in my arms, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so, and I had to work, you know, because, uh, you know, you just, you work because you got to support yeah. your family. So um, along the way, I was, you know, after my freshman year of college, after that freshman year, I met my wife, Joanne, um, the love of my life and the best thing that ever happened to me. And uh, she has inspired me every day since. And, um, you know, so we kind of went on separate paths. She went back to Ball State after I got home from Toledo, which is where I went to school uh, for that first year. And, um, 
yeah, just messed her, dated for four years and then, and then got married and, uh, had, we were pregnant four months after we got married we got pregnant and, uh, had our first kid a year into our marriage, a little over a year in our marriage. So, so what yeah. kind of jobs were you holding down while going through school? Or did you just, did you, were you log on to something? Or was it? Old oh time? man. Oh man. You had to bring that up. So I worked at UPS at night. And so, um, I would unload and load trucks and UPS from uh, midnight through 5 a.m. And so uh, there was a guy standing over me with a stopwatch uh, timing me as I unloaded trucks. And, you know, at one point I remember it was like three in the morning. I'm sweating like a pig. You know, I'm just gross. And and I thought, what am I doing here? Like, this is ridiculous. But I didn't I didn't want any debt. I didn't want to I didn't want to have to go into debt for college. To take the easy way out. So I, um, well, easy, easy, short-term pain, long-term I'd rather do pain now and get, you know, long-term, you know, joy out of life. And so I uh, graduated with no debt because I worked at UPS and did that thing. Um, but I used to leave work at like, you know, five, six in the morning and I'd go sit over at Xavier and, um, at the college and I would sit there in the parking lot and I'd go in covered in box soot and, you know, boots and whatever uh flannel shirts and all that kind of stuff smelling awful i'm sure i'd go to class and no one would sit next to me and um you know very different than most of the students at Xavier at the time it was kind of a kind of a you know preppy school expensive school um but i got a scholarship there too because i i, I filled out every form possible to do that and alumni you know um, gave a lot of scholarships so that's how i got through school debt free um, so those 11 years were paid for some out of my pocket, some out of scholarship money or whatever. But um, what lessons learned do you have from working at UPS? Sounds like you have some good stories in there. Like it, it's oh, yeah. memory you know that really uh, helped mold you. You know what? Great company to work for. Uh, really great company to work for, honestly. I mean, it taught me a lot about being on time, logistics, responsibility, Um that there are other people around you, depending on you. Culture was really important, all that kind of stuff. And there were some things they didn't get right too, but overall, um, you know, I learned how to work really hard for what you wanted. And and that's, I wasn't afraid of that. And I think that's probably, that probably comes from my dad as well. Really strong work ethic going through that. But I, it also taught me what I didn't want, which was, man, I don't want to work physically. I don't want to work this hard the rest of my life. My body won't, won't hold up. So um, so I thought if I, I better get this college degree because, you know, I want to do something other than, you know, just beat the heck out of my body for years. So you study in college. So at that time I studied, uh, I got an associate's degree from Cincinnati state, okay. uh, in marketing management. And then I got a, a bachelor's in liberal arts from Xavier and then a bachelor or sorry, a master's of business administration with an emphasis in marketing. Um, from Xavier. So graduated with my MBA at that nice. point. Yeah. yeah. I, I went, I went very similar route. I was in my late thirties when I went back to school and I had probably about three different schools underneath my belt prior to that, as well as four years in the Marine Corps, but it's a associate's degree in hospitality management and then a bachelor's degree in business management. And then I was like, I'm yeah. done. I've got a, I've got a certificate of completion for uh, seminary school. I see you took the scenic route to me. That's what I call it. 
Everybody <laughs> asked me, how would you go to college? I said, well, I took the scenic route. I, <laughs> I want to enjoy it all the way through. And I did, man. I had a ball. I had a ball going to college and doing all that kind of stuff. But there was something very satisfying after I graduated to know that I had no debt and I had a job at PNG. And I had a bunch of people I went to school with that were up to their earballs and, uh, you know, in debt. Mm-hmm. And they hadn't landed a job yet. And I was thinking, man, you know, I, I don't know why you would do that, but I, I get it. Um, so I don't know. Just was, a different approach. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, just a different approach. That's, that's yeah, I was just going to say, so is P&G like in your sights when you were working on your MBA or was there? I mean, I, I know what it's like here on, on, on the campus here. I mean, those those students are doing internships and as many as they can to get plugged in and connected with companies. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, it's interesting because half of my career, my college career was was UPS. The other half was PNG. I got a job as a, a research associate there. Started at the very bottom, like washing stains out of fabrics and washing machines. Right. I mean, at all hours of the night, whatever. Um, but that was part of it. And so when I got in there, you know, you, it was one of those just work hard and see what happens. And so got hired full time um, and actually went for my MBA. That's what made me decide to go for my MBA was I wanted to advance in the company. And so I thought I'm going to go get that that MBA and see what happens. And so I got the MBA and they actually paid for my MBA. They reimbursed me as long as I got, you know, B or an A, I think mm-hmm. in the courses, they reimbursed it. And so that's another way I found um, to to kind of get through, through college. Um, and then when I graduated, I loved what I was studying so much about entrepreneurialism that I thought someday I'm going to own my own company. I'm going to, I'm going to start my own thing because I'm just not a corporate guy. I'm not great with bosses. Um, not that I don't work hard for them or anything like that, or I, not that they were bad people. They were great people. I love the bosses that I had. I just, um, uh, yeah, just, it, it was too confining, I guess. Maybe as a way to say it is, is I just felt there were possibilities out there. So I haven't had a boss in probably 30 years. Oh man, that's good. So, yeah. So did you have anybody like mentoring you that was kind of just, was there somebody in there that was just kind of going, Hey man, you know, I know you're down here just washing dirty laundry to make sure this laundry detergent works well to get the stain out that we say it's going to get out. Yeah. But you know what? It wasn't anybody at, at either one of the places that I worked. It was as a group of guys that I had met. Um, so this is a part of my story. That's kind of hard to talk about. I get a little emotional about it, but um, so our first five years of marriage, we got married really early. So we were, I was 22. My wife was 21. Mm. Um, we didn't know what we were doing. We had no money. You know, I'm going to college. Yeah. I'm, by the way, I'm also coaching high school football at this point. Um, and working, working overtime at work and just doing everything I could right at the time to kind of keep the lights on. But that was the, that was what I was telling myself. But the fact was our marriage was bad. The first five years we fought every other word was divorce. It was, it was really bad. We were both two selfish kids that, you know, didn't know what the heck we wanted and where we were going and all that kind of stuff. And so these guys, it was actually my brother-in-law, my brother-in-law, um, I went for a walk with him one day and I said, man, I just, I, I got to find a solution here because this isn't working. And uh, he said to me, he goes, Hey, and I was, we were Catholic at the time. And and I was very grateful for that upbringing and all that kind of stuff. And um, at least 
you know, felt like I knew where to turn at that time. And so we, you know, we went for some counseling at the Catholic church and just didn't seem to land with us. I'm sure it lands with a lot of other people, but didn't land with us. And so I'm talking to my brother-in-law on this walk and he goes, Hey, if you ever think about, you know, trying something else, you should check out our church. It's a, it's a non-denominational church in Cincinnati. It was, you know, at that time it was the beginning of the mega church era. And this was one of the first mega churches, um, around. And so, um, you know, and, and as bad as our, our marriage was, it was, it was awful. Really, it was awful. And we were kind of sleeping in separate rooms and we had two kids at the time, Well, we had one kid at the time and one on the way. And, uh, but it had gotten so bad, we were in different rooms. And, and so, and then another guy at the gym told me I should go check out this church. And so, um, so one day I just said to my wife, I said, look, I don't know if we're going to make it, we need God in this thing. Cause I don't know what to do. And uh, so I said, I'm going to go to this church. I'm going to check it out. And I gave her a couple cassette tapes to listen to, cause I had already listened to them by the pastor there. And we had, we had all kinds of problems. I mean, we were $170,000 in debt and only 70 of it was our house. So we had a hundred thousand dollars in consumer debt because the way I saw problems, I just bought her things mm-hmm. and that would last for like three days. And then, you know, we'd be at it again and all that kind of stuff. And so just created a mess with all that. And uh, so my brother-in-law put his arm around me and he said, Hey, why don't you come out with us um, on Thursday night, me and these three other guys. And we just go to this place, this little bookstore in Cincinnati down the worst part of town called uh, Caldi's. We go there at 10 o'clock at night. We'd eat cherry cobbler and we'd talk about Jesus. Mm. And uh, I did mostly listening, but I remember coming home from those nights all jacked up on caffeine and falling in bed and just going, man, if this is true, uh, that changes everything. Like it changes everything of who I want to be as a human being. And um, so we ended up going to this church and and these guys walking alongside me, they became mentors to me. A really profound thing happened. One of my one of the guys in the group, he said to me, he became my my true mentor. His name's Keith Brown. He uh he's about 10 years older than me. And and he asked me what was going on with my marriage. And I said, I don't know, man. I said, I, I think I'm doing everything I can do. I'm, you know, I'm I'm trying to be better at this, better at that. And she's not responding, you know, and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And he he asked me this really profound philosophical question. He goes, How's that going for you? <laughs> and I hate that question. Like I hate it to this day. I hate that question because it's so convicting because, and, and I was like, well, it's not going good, man. It's going bad. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And he goes, I want you to do something for me. He goes, I want you to go home tomorrow. I want you to start this. And back then we didn't have cell phones or, you know, smartphones or whatever. He goes, I want you to set an egg timer, turn off all technology I want you to put her feet on your lap on the couch and I want you to rub her feet. Here's the rule. You cannot make any statements. You can't fix anything. All you are allowed to do is rub her feet, listen and ask clarifying questions. That's all you're allowed to do. Right. And I learned later on that I struggled back then to be fully present with her or anybody. Right. It was, it was just, uh, I had kind of a ADHD thing going on. Um, undiagnosed, but I'm sure I have it at some level. And, uh, and I wouldn't pay attention to her. And she would say things like, you just don't pay attention when I'm talking to you. You're not, you're not here when you're supposed to be here. And so he said, do this. And so I did it for 30 days. He's out of dairy for 30 days. I'm like, yeah, whatever. But 
and you know, just to prove them wrong because I was competitive, I'm like, I'll do it. So I did it and nothing really changed, right? Not a whole lot changed. And so I went back to him. I said, it's 30 days, nothing's changed. He goes, do it for another 30 days. And I said, okay, now you're pushing. And he's like, just trust me, do it for another 30 days. So I did. And about 15 days into that 30 day, you know, next 30 days of rubbing her feet, something changed. All of a sudden I started seeing her trying to outserve me. Like we started out serving each other. It was a weird thing. It was like, no, I'll show you. I'm I'm a better servant than you are in this marriage. And 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 something happened. It just clicked. And um so yeah, one day we you'll love this. So so I used to when all this was going on, um, you know, we had our first daughter, Sarah. We had our our daughter, first daughter, Sarah. And um we got home from the hospital that night and we were watching the news and some lady had thrown her like two month old baby out the window into a dumpster or something. It was back during that era where people were getting rid of their babies or whatever. And I, man, it just broke me. It was one of those moments where I was like, oh, this is so awful, this world. And I knew my marriage was in trouble. So, you know, I went and held my daughter and I looked at her and I thought, how in the world, I looked up, I said, how in the world could you expect me to raise her when I can't even manage myself right now? You know, and I went to the bedroom, my, our bedroom, I closed the door and locked it and I got on my knees and I said, this is my prayer. So I hope your listeners don't get offended by this. But um, I said, God, if you're real, you need to help me because I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. That's what I said. That was my prayer. Again, I hope that doesn't offend anybody when I say it. It actually chokes me up, man, honestly. So we're... We're probably, and I did this for every night for six months. And about six months in, <laughs> I forgot to lock the door one night and uh, my wife walks in and this is as things started to progress. And I started seeing some of this change and she did too. And she walked in and, you know, most wives are nervous. They're going to catch their husband doing something else behind closed doors. <laughs> I'm on my knees praying to God, like, help me. I had my finance book laid out on like our, our budget just kind of laid out on the bed, like help. I don't know what to do with this. And she comes in and she catches me praying. And I thought, I just, I heard the door open. I went, Oh man, I forgot to lock the door. And she knelt down by me on the bed. <clears throat> Sorry. And she said, we're going to make it. Yeah. That's awesome, man. That's the night everything kind of changed. I mean, it didn't get, you know, overly better right away. But the fact was we were in it now. And we took the D word out of our conversations. We promised each other no more of that. We would we would keep doing what we're doing. So um, she's amazing. She's an amazing woman. Anyway, so we started going to this church and uh, got involved in kids ministry. I learned the Bible in children's church, just so you know, like I didn't go to formal seminary or anything like that. Children's church is what taught me the Bible. Um, Cause I had to learn it that way. That was, that was part of it. And uh, yeah. And that led to a lot of different things. So working at PNG. Um, yeah. So I worked at PNG for seven years during, and that's kind of the same time all this was going on. And, and when I, kind of found Christ or he found me or however you want to say that. Um, it was probably in my last year at PNG, I made a guy named Bob. Bob was uh, 54 and a half years old. He had been working at PNG since he was 18. 
Um, and he ran washing machines for a living. That's what he did. He was a chemist by trade. He grew up in Chicago, loved his dad, loved the Cubs, loved trains. Like I, I got to know him really well because he would wait for me at the end of this long, narrow parking lot. And we'd walk in together and, uh, you know, he at seven thirty in the morning, he'd be parked in his car. I'd get out of my car and I'd go over and, you know, and, and we walk in and, uh, I learned all this about him and he used to go cause he was going to retire when he was 55 and he used to say, he used to grumble and mumble about how much he hated his job, how much he hated the people he worked with. And then he would tell me how many days he had till left till retirement, right? And uh, it's like, mumble, grumble, 106 days, mumble, grumble, 84 days, Tim. I mean, finally, one day I said to him, I said, Bob, you are, and by the way, he's a multimillionaire because he had worked there so long. He went through all these stock splits. And I'm not talking about like a couple million, like this is tens of millions. Like this guy had money. You never know it, right? He's driving like a Pinto and you know, whatever. And I said, what are you doing? Just leave. But like, why are you here? And he goes, well, if I stay, I get the watch and I get the party. And I'm like, I'll throw you a party and you can put whatever you want on that Rolex when you buy it. Cause that's like a dime to you. And he's like, no, I, I'm going to stay. And so 31 days before his retirement, I pulled in the parking lot and he wasn't there. And so I walked in and I asked one of my colleagues, I said, Hey, am I seeing Bob? It was, it was unusual, but it, that, you know, but it, you know, every once in a while he wouldn't be there. So I said, anybody seen Bob? And just nonchalantly, one of my colleagues walks over and a really serious look on their face and goes, hey, nobody told you? And I said, no, what? And they said, Bob died of a massive stroke last night, he passed away. And I went upstairs and quit. And I didn't call my wife. I just went upstairs and quit. And then I called my wife and her response was so beautiful. She just said very calmly, she goes, it's okay. God will take care of us. And that was it. That's when our, our journey truly began. So I started, I thought, what would it look like to start a company that when people's feet hit the floor, they couldn't wait to get to work. Like they couldn't wait to get to work because they got to tell stories about people. They got mm -hmm. to tell people's true human stories. Like what would it look like if we did that? So we started a market research. I started a market research company. Um, in 1997 called Focal Point, had a business partner at the time. Um, he wanted to take the, the company a different direction. And so in 2000, um, I kind of gave him everything, said, here, take it. It's all yours. I'm going to go start something else. And I was reading Matthew uh, 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the word seek popped out to me. Uh, in that passage, you know, seek first the kingdom of heaven, all these things will come to you as well. And um, I said, that's the name of the company. So we started Seek and Seek was birthed in 2000 and ran Seek for 24 years and sold it, you know, 24 years later and um, worked for a company that bought us for four years and then decided it was time to go off and work with leaders who were going through what I've already been through that I could help kind of guide them and navigate them through that. So quite a journey. I got four kids now and, and uh, yeah, the rest is kind of history. So that is quite the journey. Yeah. It's a couple of things. I mean, you were talking about Bob, I kind of heard the Bob story before from you. I, I know I heard, I think you told it to me once before, maybe I don't, I know I've heard it, but it was, as I was listening to it, I'm like, man, 
couple lessons here, guys. A, don't run off and quit your job before you talk to your wife unless you have a really strong foundation <laughs> in your faith. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we just we were testing the waters. We were just testing the waters to see how strong it was. That's what's going on. But like something that jumped out at me, and I don't know why this never jumped out at me before. But Bob's legacy is that story you just told me about him being a grumpy old man. Yeah, but in some way, but you know what? But he wasn't a grumpy old man. He was a guy who didn't like his job and stayed in it. That's what it was. I mean, okay. I, well, I don't want to split hairs on that one, but I, that's kind of the way I just, that, that's <laughs> I see. It's not happening. You're, if you're, if you're grumpy at work, why are you grumpy at work? Probably grumpy at home. You know, I mean, I don't know, but either way, he's remembered for being that. Someone that comes in, negative energy and and i'm not i don't want to take anything away from bob because i'm sure bob was a great guy and an awesome fellow but to me there's just that and it's something that's been kind of on my heart lately uh personally has been kind of navigating um i read something in second timothy or not second timothy in acts our church is doing a series on acts and the pastors there was this one one verse where it says this was a place where they were called Christians for the first time. And he goes, Christians mean the little Christ. And as soon as he said that, all I could think was like, that's what I want people to remember. me. Like, that's what I want. And, and don't hear, I, I hope people know that I'm saying this from a very humble, humble place of like, I'm not putting myself in the same boat as, as Jesus, but I want people to say, I want my children to say that, like my dad, like he lived a life that was, like I saw Christ in everything he did. Yep. It's because it's fun. I, I read the book. Uh, have you ever read the book um, Halftime by Bob Buford? Yeah. Yeah. Great book. Yeah. And so ever since I, once I read that book, I've been trying to figure out, hey, how do I answer that question? What do I want my epitaph? And when he said that word, little Christ, all I could think was, Wow, man, like that's really what I want. That's that encompasses. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I was, you know, the, uh, straight up stealing this from Andy Stanley. So, um, but I was listening to this podcast called The Beyond You Leader. And, and it it's interesting because he reframes that that thing. And he says, Let, let's I think it was his wife that gave him this quote. But she said, when you're done with your career, Makes it a little less morbid, right? But when you're done with your career, what is it that you want people to stand in line to thank you for? I think that's an interesting question, right? Because that when we talk about our careers and our leadership, what do you want the people you've invested in, you've built into, you've mentored, you've coached, you've grown up with, you know, you've started companies with, whatever, what do you want them to say at the end of your career, right? Um, you know, you mentioned my mission statement or my you know, that my personal vision statement is to add value to every life, my life intersects. And so I've had that for probably 20 years. And, um, you know, at the end of my time at Seek, when, when it ended, you know, just this past um, May, they had a three hour like love fest when I left. It was amazing. There were people online and in person and everything. It was a lot of people there. And um, 
my staff just did it up so right. I mean, they were just so good about it and all that. And but probably one of the most meaningful things was uh, Justin, who I worked very, very closely with during that time, um, was one of the people interviewing me. And he said, hey, man, I know your personal vision, like you've shared it with us so many times. He goes, but I just want to tell you, mission accomplished. And that, you know, I, it's coming from a human, but to me, I translated that as God saying, well done, you know, my good and faithful servant, right? At, at least for this part of your life, this part of your career. Um, well done. So I don't know. I, I just... I hope, I hope everybody has that. My wife came back. She, she was listening, you know, online because she had to be in, in Pauly's while I was there. And she goes, everybody needs this in their lifetime. Everybody needs a time where people talk about their legacy before they die. Mm -hmm. Not, not after they're dead because they need to hear it. They need to, they need to be in the room feeling it from people around them. And uh, yeah. So I don't know. There's a lot to that. And and what will your legacy be? You know, what do you want people to thank you for at the end of your career? Or they would be willing to stay in line. I actually wrote that down here. Into the it's not mine. It's okay. Andy Stanley's wife. Let's, let's give her credit for that. So I'm, I've been known to quote Andy Stanley more than once. So it's, it's okay. I like him. Yeah. I like his wife too. Um, what, how is that? Or what happened that really transitioned you from this marketing and this marketing kind of background to into coaching? Because you started coaching before you left Seek. I did. So I did. where did that trans? When and where did that transition start? Really unpacking for you um, yeah. as a coach. So in 2015, um, we we had the dark night of the soul in the business. So I had a, a business partner at the time, and and. Uh, we had two of our biggest clients pull out um, from doing research just in general with anybody, not just us. They just stopped doing it. And we lost about a half a million dollars a month in, in revenue. It just went away, you know, overnight. And uh, so you can imagine what that does to a company and all the things that happen. And through a series of events, you know, pro profit covers a multitude of sins. And so when the covers got pulled back on the business, I realized that, um, we were not very financially sound. And, you know, and I, I blame myself for that. Um, as the, as the CEO, you know, it's all, all to, again, it goes back to that lesson I learned in leadership years ago. It's always on you. So there were some mistakes made and taxes not paid and, you know, and unbeknownst to me, I, I could plead ignorance, um, which I was, but at the same time, I, I was ignorant because I wasn't paying attention. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's, that's on me. And so, that was a painful time. And uh, so my business partner and I separated um, all of our entities. He got some properties. I got some properties. I got Seek. He got another company. We started together. And, um, and that was a rough transition, but we, we made it. We made it through. And, and we did it with, I think, honor, you know, through the process. And, um, and come, but, but going through that process, we hired a coach. We hired a, a coach from Five Capitals, Brandon Schaefer, who you know. And Brandon coached us through that. Um, and anyway, somewhere in that process, he said to me, he goes, you know, when you go through stuff like this, there's a pretty good chance you're supposed to help the next person through it. Mm. And so you think you'd make a great coach. What do you think of this? And I said, I don't know, I'll, I'll try it. So I got certified and, um, I coached a really cool guy as a pastor in Austin, Texas. Um, 
he was my only client. I think he paid me $250 a month <laughs> back then. And, uh, and, you know, we made some headway and then he's for one day, he just started making introductions for me, uh, introduced me to you know, a number of companies and whatever. And then I started coaching them and then they told people. And the next thing you know, it's just, you know, coaching is a word of mouth business, just like the research industry is. And so if you do good work for those clients, they recommend you. And everything I coached on, I coach on even today is based on mistakes that I've made. Right. Or, or hard times that we've been through or, you know, things we changed that worked, you know, um, bringing a company from the brink of bankruptcy and everything all the way out to being a thriving company that was, you know, had a high value mark on it, things like that. So, but I had to learn how to do that. And so that learning curve to be able to pass that on to other leaders so that they don't make the same mistakes I made is, you know, and it's just turned into a really, really great career. And so it started uh, getting so much that I, you know, was turning people down to coach because I had a full-time job as a CEO, right. Running a division within the company that bought us. And, uh, and then one day just said that it's time, it's time that I do this full-time. So started doing that and haven't missed a beat. I mean, took on a bunch of new clients and, um, and I like long-term engagements with my clients. I mean, it, it, some of them I've been with for six, seven years now. Um, and uh, always bringing something new to the table and, and you know, helping them through whatever it is and, and see them grow and the trajectory growing up and profits increasing and culture being amazing, right? That's, I always love the culture piece, right? Because that's what Seek was. Seek was a, a place where people love coming to work. And I thought, man, what if we could create that in a lot of other businesses too? So I love the culture piece as well. Cool. So, man, I mean, obviously uh, successful businesses, um, you've been very successful as a coach, but through this story, I know that you had to have figured out how to, I don't like to use the word balance, but learn how to ride the wave that life is and create and, and, you know, balance on that surfboard, you know, of yeah. hey, how am I going to successfully build this business out and turn it into what it is and then sell it, but also maintain being a good dad and husband and being present in my personal life. I mean, what, what was that like for you and your wife and, and how were, were the lessons there that, that you learned and, and that you could share with, with the guys that are listening to this podcast? Well, I'll, I'll start the answer. This this might be the toughest question you asked me because um, I'll start it with uh, uh, just a phrase. Crisis always produces opportunity, right? Every crisis produces an opportunity. And if if you don't believe that and you're deep in your heart, it's really hard to get through the crises, Right. And so looking for where God's at work in the midst of these trials is, is always a hard, hard thing. And so, um, so, <laughs> um, while I, right after I sold the business and was working in the business, right. As a, as a president of the division that we sold to the larger company a year in, uh, my daughter dove into a pool and broke her neck and was paralyzed from the waist down. And so, um, we got a call. It was after her freshman year of college. She's my youngest daughter. Um, 
my youngest kid out of four. And, uh, you know, we were, <laughs> my wife and I were sitting on the porch that night, you know, kind of raising a glass, toasting the fact that we, uh, we got our youngest daughter through her first year of college. She was a productive citizen of society, just like the other three. We did it. Now it's time to live our lives. And we kind of cheersed, you know, and did our thing. We went to bed that night and uh, about 10 minutes after I had my head hit the pillow, the phone rang. Um, and it was the phone call that you never want to get. It said your daughter dove into a pool and broke her neck and um, she's not moving. And this was in the height of COVID. So we couldn't, I couldn't get into the hospital um, to see her. So I drove over, saw the ambulance come in. I met the ambulance there, couldn't talk to anybody. Um, watched them, you know, wheel her into the hospital and just fell on my knees in this parking lot and said, I don't know what's going on, God, but, you know, something, I just broke. I mean, just bawling in the middle of this, this, you know, I had a friend, um, his name's Jeff uh, Bauer. <laughs> He's been a, you know, one of my best friends since, since high school. And he drove down from you know, his house in, in Westchester with the northern part of Cincinnati and uh, sat with me in my truck. And um, we cried together and we prayed together. And his wife went over and sat with my wife. And, you know, community is, you see the beauty of people during these times. And, um, I mean, we had no idea what was going on. And, and, uh, anyway, she ended up with, uh, with a, what's called an incomplete injury. She lost, um, mobility from her waist down. Uh, this was four years ago, almost four years ago. Um, and anyway, that whole journey was, was crazy, but, you know, it was interesting because we had to move to Denver. That's where the hospital was that, that specialized in spinal cord injuries. So my wife and I lived in Denver for probably four months. Then we brought her back to Cincinnati. It didn't work very well there because, you know, not everybody's set up for ADA or whatever, I'm making a very long story short, but, uh, you know, through all that, my wife and I had this conversation where we said, you know, where she said, she goes, you know, do I wish this never would have happened? Yes. But do I wish I was the same person that I was before it happened? No. Right. Because in the midst of this, it, it changes you. And, and, you know, couples, they have a, and families, they have the choice to either lean into each other or run. And fortunately, both both parties have to make the choice to lean into each other. And we did. And because of everything we had been through in our marriage, I think we knew how to do that, right? And so we stuck together. Um, long story short, my daughter is out in Denver now. She lives by herself in an apartment. She drives. Um, she can drive a car with her hands and hand controls and all that. It's it's a rough, it's a rough situation, right? But she flew, um, she flew to Polly's to see us and back, and then she flew back by herself. So her independence is coming every day, and it's a, there's a lot of really good things that are coming out of this. And and she's a different person than she was. She she was adopted from China. She came with a lot of baggage um, and a lot of you know rough stuff in her during her growing up time, but. Uh, there's something different about her now that wasn't, wasn't there before the accident. So, yeah. So balance, um, you know, watching our kids respond, you know, in their own different and unique ways, some good, some bad through all of this, but 
bottom line is, you know, we're all there. We all love each other and uh, we're all moving this thing forward. So, you know, family goes through crisis. It produces, you know, opportunities. So what would you say was one of the, I don't want to say the biggest struggles. I mean, obviously you shared, you know, just your first seven years of what that was like being at PNG and then, and, and that, that struggle that your marriage was in through that. I mean, obviously that produced a ton of resilience and then really built the foundation of your faith. Um, and would you say, I mean, that's just really those pivotal moments that has, has just continued to strengthen and, and grow your faith and your relationship with your wife through all of this. And then obviously I need to ask, you said you adopted your youngest daughter. So we skipped that part completely. <laughs> when that- <laughs> Yeah, really I have so much time. Kids, so How like, are people going to listen to this? <laughs> you know? Hey man, I don't. This, you know, I mean, I know guys are listening. Yeah. Um, and I know that I have to be persistent in this because I believe, yeah, the stories of these men, of of you, of of Corey, who was on last week, um, the guy Walker, who I had here a couple nights ago. I mean, he's 26, you know, mm-hmm. um, his story matters. Yeah. And I think as leaders um, and as, as men, like we're, we're always looking at these grandiose leaders and there's nothing wrong with those guys, right? There's nothing wrong with looking at a Jocko Willink or looking at, um, you know, a Craig Rochelle or these other amazing leaders and leaders of business. But I can't relate with that guy when it comes down to it because he lives in a world that I'll never live in. Mm. Like, I know that if I walk into the coffee shop, I'm probably going to see Tim Ermston. Mm. I know Tim Ermston's pumping his own gas and having a conversation with the lady at the Quickie Mart, right? Mm. And I think that's the difference between and 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 it's not by any fault of their own. They're there and it's great that they have these amazing stories and these tools. But I think there's something that becomes a little more personal when I'm telling the story of the guy who lives literally down the street from me. Yep. Or a guy, I, I know I can pick the phone up and text him and say, hey, man, I need some prayer. Yep. Yep. That to me. Makes sense a personal intimateness to the story that just makes it relatable and, and really gives hope to guys out there to go, Hey man, I can make a change. I, I, I can look at the crisis that my family's in right now and I can ask God, Hey, what is the opportunity or where are you at in this so that I know where to go? Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah, it's a fun journey. So it's, it's a fun journey. It's a hard journey. It's a, you know, the adoption thing, um, that all started when you know, we had three kids at the time and, uh, <laughs> we were thinking about a fourth and my wife, we were at a Super Bowl party and my wife is kneeling on the floor playing with our kids or whatever. And, uh, Dan Marino came on the Super Bowl commercial and he and his wife and they adopted three kids from China and I'm just passing through the room, right? It's halftime. So I'm passing through the room and I look over and she's got tears just pouring down her face and i thought oh crap we, this was in dayton and we had to drive back to cincinnati <laughs> i said i know what we're talking about on the way home and uh 
Uh-oh. Paperwork started the next day, man. I mean, it was we got started a two year process. Um, I went to China to pick her up, and and there were like twelve girls that were being adopted in this group that we went in. But she was the only one that got sick. She got bronchitis, and um, so we had to stay extra. We had to stay an extra week or whatever. And so back then, China wasn't what China is now. And and uh, I just remember going. You know, she had to get antibiotics, and so antibiotics. They were about ten years behind the U.S. antibiotics, and they gave them to them as IVs in their forehead. And so, and it was a like a gymnasium. And they would call you up in Chinese and in Mandarin or Cantonese, one of the two. And uh, we were in Guangzhou at the time. And and they was, they would hook an IV up and then they'd have these poles where you hook the bag on and you sit with them on like a church bench. Um, and there were thousands of people in this auditorium all getting IVs, all, all kids getting IVs in there for it. It was a weird, to me, it was a really weird thing. We had to do this for like a whole week. And the third day they said, hey, we want you to come in and we're going to do in like an acupuncture kind of thing with her. So I took her in. They had a needle. It had to be six inches long. And they made me stand outside of a room. and I could look inside the glass and I watched them jam this six inch long needle into her neck. And like I thought he was going to go right through her neck. And And here I am. I'm, you know, I'm about a foot taller than everybody else in this place got a baseball hat on and I'm balling because that's my little girl, right? She's my little girl now. I mean, that's that's all there is to it. And, you know, she has a look on her face like, why are you letting them do this to me? And I'm like, uh, you know, it's one of those those moments. And, you know, I don't handle that stuff very well anyway. So um, so anyway, we got her home and, and she got healthy. She probably got one of the strongest immune systems in the world. Like this kid never gets sick. Sorry, this young lady now, she never gets sick. So um but yeah, so, and that was a little bit of chaos because she came with what's called reactive attachment disorder, um, which is just like oppositional defiant disorder. It's a very angry, um, so she screamed from the time we got her till the time she was 18, really, <laughs> and just awful. Uh, it was hard, hard on us, hard on our other kids, but we got her through. That's why we were toasting that night. And, uh, you know, she got through, she made it through, but. Anyway, it's that persistence and that stubbornness that's probably getting her through this this accident now. And uh, yeah, it's a tragic story, but at the same time, there's a lot of hope laced inside of it, a lot of opportunities inside. You tie? Do you tie that grit that you have inside of you to something in particular? Uh, probably trace it back to my dad, that work ethic, right? Just going back and say there, you know, quitting is not an option. He was not a fan of quitting, like you finish something. If you want to quit, you finish the season, you finish the the race, you finish the, whatever you do, you commit to, you finish. And, um, you know, that's probably where that comes from that, that strong, you know, work ethic that he had that he passed on to me, my brother and my sister, all of us are like this. It's a, it's a crazy thing, but you get through it. You walk, you work, you know, definitely. Yeah. And you rely on God. You know, I mean, without faith, how, how do you, I don't know how people get through crises without faith. Um, I know some do. I don't know how, but they do. Uh, but man, why would you? <laughs> it's so much harder without him. Like, you know, just can't imagine that. So, yeah. yeah. So, Is that helpful? 
Yeah, man, without a doubt, I definitely think that just kind of gives us a little light to just, you know, you know, I love the story of just the of adopting your your daughter and, and just I understand that. Like I can I can empathize and, and say that that doesn't happen to me, but I can see my wife literally, you know, just kind of her heart breaking for something and me just going, Yep, I know what conversations we're gonna have on the way home because yep. we're gonna make a change and I'm just I need to get on board because there's not gonna be any change in her mind. Yep. So something God did for her, which is cool. Um, the other thing I think I, I, I love what you said um, when you go through something like this, you're, or what you said that Brandon said to you. It's like this: you're you are supposed to pay it forward. And I think when you said that, I wasn't even thinking about hey, you learned and you were coached. I literally I. I I started reflecting on my my past and how my personal struggles have been the tools and the things that I learned that made me the man I am today. And this is what I have to pay for. So it wasn't wasn't necessarily a positive coaching moments. They were more like hard life lesson moments. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna learn somehow, aren't we? <laughs> uh, I, I, that is how I learned. I, I, I needed a degree that says "School of Hard Knocks" on my on my shelves. I think. Because that's probably where I have most of my lessons from. Um, so, were there any other particular lessons that, that you you know lived or learned that really plays in how you lead your life, your family, your work, your marriage? Yeah, this I think it goes back to my my vision statement. Right, is I want to add value like I to everybody. Like I don't want to I don't want to walk away from any situation. Again, I'm not perfect at this, but it's not what I'm saying. I but this thing sits in front of my mind at all times. It says when when I walk away, will that person go, man, I'm 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 better because I met Tim, or I'm stronger because I met Tim, or I laughed harder because I met Tim, or you know, whatever it is. And and again, I, I've stood in front of the CEO of, you know. Google and Facebook and some of these other places and, and, you know, large corporations. And I've also stood in front of a, you know, lady at the quickie Mart, right. That's, that's taking my money for pumping gas. Right. And, uh, I hope when I walk away from both of them, they say, gosh, that was a great experience. And I I'm different because of it. Like in a, in a good way. Um, I'm not sure everybody's that conscious of it, but you know, one day when I'm standing in front of him, I hope he can say mission accomplished, right? You did it. You add that you did add value to every life, your life intersected. And, you know, I want, I want, otherwise, why are we doing this? Right. I mean, you know, we live in a world, William, that's so angry right now. Everybody's so angry and everybody's throwing insults and got opinions and, and saying awful things about each other behind a computer screen. And, you know, you just see it everywhere and it, and you can feel it. I mean, it's, it's, it's awful. And where are the, where are the value add adders? Yeah. You know, where are those people who are going to go make a difference, who are going to, who are going <laughs> to, you know, Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say, right. You've heard it said, you know, and I, and I love this because what he's doing is showing both sides of the coin and he's going, you know, I know that the world is telling you this, but I say do this. And it's so counterintuitive. Like 
why would I add, try to add value to somebody who um, is not giving me what I want mm -hmm. or what I need or whatever? Why would I do that? Because well, he said to. Because <laughs> he said to. Yeah. Right? Do you see people the way Jesus sees them? And that's been the prayer. That's probably the most profound thing. You know, you've never, and I, and again, depending on how you feel about Bill Hybels, I love Bill Hybels. And he said, you've never locked, locked eyes with anybody Jesus didn't die for. You know, and I was with a, a friend of mine one time and, and we watched this. And again, I might make some people mad when I say this, but, you know, sorry. Um, we were out shopping one day and and there was a, a drag queen, a, a guy dressed as a drag queen going through the parking lot of this thing. And, and my friend just had this, uh, I don't know, and I'm sure it was based in a lack of understanding or whatever, but, but just this kind of, what the heck is that? You know, and this thought crossed my mind. That's somebody Jesus died for. What if we all approached it that way? What if we saw people that way? What, you know, people who are different than us, people that didn't agree with us, people who did things that maybe even hurt us, right? Or hurt people we loved. And what if we, we said, that's somebody Jesus died for? Because that's what he did. Yeah. That's why he said, pray for your enemies. Yeah. That's counterintuitive. That doesn't make sense in this world. Uh, it makes sense in the kingdom of heaven. And so he's teaching us a heavenly perspective. And I don't know, I just, that's where the vision statement came from. Add value to every life, your life intersects. So I don't want to get there and him go, yep, Tim, you were right. That guy was a jerk. Yep, Tim, you were right. Every time you argue with your wife, right? Yep, Tim, you were right when they overcharged you at the restaurant and you made a fuss. Good job. Hey, yep, Tim, you were right when you yelled at the Delta, you know, uh, ticket agent because the flight was delayed yeah. and you made a big scene at the airport. I don't, I don't need that. And I don't think that's what God wants. It's not about us being right. It's about us adding value. It's about us being kind. You it's, and you're making me think I have a, a men's retreat I go to every year and they have this list of questions that they kind of walk us through in this process and they send you home with it as well. Um, but it's a quest, series of questions that I I now ask almost regularly to myself during my quiet time, um, as well as share it with my men's groups and my, my men's small groups. But it's questions like, hey, Jesus, what do you think of me as a man? And when I usually ask that question to a group of guys, the answer is I usually get are, well, you know, I need to work on that or, hey, you need. And I'm like, that's not what Jesus is saying to me. And that's not, he'll never say that to you. Because that's not what a father says to a son. And when you're able, I mean, and that's that's what you're talking about right there. There's that you're adding value. And that's what he does is he adds values to everybody's life out there. It doesn't matter what you look like, what you clothes you wear, what car you drive, where you're from. It does, I mean, none of that matters because he doesn't see, he just sees just what you said. He's never locked eyes with someone that Jesus didn't die for. And that is a hundred percent true. Yeah. Um, the other thing it makes me think about is, is a sermon that um, our pastor gave last year and it was on grace and truth. 
And we are all so quick to be, to say that we're giving grace with 100% truth, but we're really not. We're given maybe a little bit of grace and 100% truth, or we're given 100% grace with a little bit of truth. And Jesus was 100% both all the time. And that's why he was able to do it. Yep. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, it's what what a lot of us forget. We we get tied up in the, you know, a lot of the laws and everything else. And and but above all else, love one another as I have loved you. That above all else is probably important. <laughs> you should probably <laughs> pay attention to that. That they would love one another, right? Yeah. And love one another as I've loved you. I just, yeah. Um, anyway, that's, if that's what I'm guilty of, cause I'm not smart. I'm not smart enough to, to remember all the other stuff, but you know, it, he does say all the commands can be wrapped up in these that you love one another, right. With your, and love the Lord, your God, love one another, love the Lord, your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Right. And both of those have the word love in it. Yeah. And both of those are geared towards loving people and loving God. And and if if that's what I'm guilty of at the end of my days, I'll stand up in front of him and say that I made a lot of mistakes, man. But but bottom line, no one's hopefully no one can accuse me of not loving. Sorry if you hear the the blower go on in the background. I don't hear anything. That is good. All right. So last one. What advice would you give to men who want to live a life as a trailblazer? in any areas of their life wow there's so much to that there's so many answers to that. <laughs> so when you live as long as i have for these 55 years there's a lot of you know moments um you know that the easy answer would be write a vision statement for yourself like look you have to have a true north for where you're going and you have to have something that guides you look william the most common spiritual practice uh, spiritual discipline, any of us will practice. Do you know what it is? What's the thing that you and I will practice more than anything as far as spiritual disciplines go? You know what, know what it is? Praying? Nope. Choosing. Mm, there you go. Choosing is a spiritual act. And if you don't have a North Star, a vision, then when you choose you're kind of like what Jesus talked about being blown by the wind back and forth, right? Being lukewarm, right? These are all, all things that he says, beware of, right? And, but when you have a vision statement, right? You have something that sits out in front of you. Every choice you make is going to either get you closer to that vision or farther away from it. You now have a North star that, that you're going towards. Right. And so you wake up in the morning and says, Hey, you know, here, I'll give you a perfect example. There are mornings and when I wake up and I'm like, gosh, I really don't want to do this today. And then I think about the vision and it goes, will you be adding value to someone's life in this interaction? Or will you walk away and cancel? Or will you walk away and make an excuse? Well, I have a choice to make in that, right? And hopefully I choose one that gets me closer to my vision. Right. And that's that's ultimately what and so that goes to that grit, some of that drive that we're talking about and things like that is um, it's not just something that's written on a wall. It's written on my heart. Right. And that vision has to be written on your heart. It can't be put in a book and put away. 
it has to be something that's on the, it's got to be written on your mirror in your bathroom and, and written on your steering wheel and metaphorically written across your wife's forehead. You know, it's all that kind of stuff to add value every day. So what is that? So I, I, that would be sort of the easy answer, right? Get a personal vision statement and then make choices that take you closer to it. And, and, you know, that way you'll have some compass as to where, where things are going. The, the, maybe harder or more difficult answer is this. You don't have to go alone. You know, um, you've heard the phrase, you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go together. Yeah. I think there's a lot of truth in that community, you know, just the Trinity in and of itself is community, right? Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're together. They, he's demonstrating for us what community looks like. I don't know if I would have gotten to these places and in these situations and these opportunities and all that kind of stuff if I had tried to do it myself. So from all the guys I've talked about, my mentors early on, you know, Keith Brown, who I was telling you about, my brother-in-law, um, you know, Brandon, my coach, right? Coworkers, father figures, my that coach that yelled and spit tobacco in my face, right? That day. Um, and there's people who will walk this road with you, whether you want them to or not. Embrace that because if you try to go alone, it's going to be really bad for you, right? Um, it leads to isolation and loneliness and every leader experiences that. And as you go higher up in organizations and you get better as a leader, the temptation to do it by yourself gets greater. And you don't want to do that. Oh, man, that is some valuable insight. Um, I've never thought about choosing like that. And so that's cool. I think I just need to kind of leave it there. Uh, so one last thing, if people want to find out more about you, Tim, what you're going, what you're doing, where you're at, how to work with you, how do they do that? What's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so I'm not on Facebook intentionally, just so you know. <laughs> I can't stand it. Um, I don't do the social media thing. I am on Instagram. I think it's T Ermston, uh, at T Ermston. So you can find me there. Um, Instagram's just better because it's pictures and funny stuff. So I, you know, I like that. Um, or they can just reach out directly and email me, uh, T Ermston at five capitals.net. Uh, if they want to send me a note or whatever, they can absolutely do that. Um, yeah, or check out the Five Capitals website, uh, fivecapitals.net, and you'll you'll find myself and a bunch of other coaches there um, who would love to help you walk on your journey with this stuff and help you do some of the things we've been talking about. Yep. Well, man, I think this has been great. I mean, this is we're hour and a half in, roughly. Um, so Every second, man. Thank you for uh, letting me tell my story. I haven't told that story in a long time, so it's been uh, a while. Honestly, I was honored to be able to hear it, man, and be on the other side of this mic from you. Um, mm, I, I think I've always known that there's been a connection, or at least for me, there's always been someone that I always felt like I could turn to and ask for and for advice, guidance, wisdom, and and you've always been that for me, and I appreciate that. Um, but there's also, for whatever reason, I've, I've always felt a connection to you um, as a leader and how you – have lived and, and how you do live out your personal vision of, of just creating value um, in people. Um, 
And I just appreciate that. I'll make sure to put in the show notes how everybody can find you and contact you to work with you because I know that you have a ton going on through Five Capitals and it's really, really exciting. So you guys definitely need to look him up and get a chance to do it. So is any last any last words, man? No, just thank you, man. Thank you for doing this and keep at it. You know, keep at it because uh, these you're right. These stories need to be told, and uh, it's as good for the for the listeners as it is for the, or for the speaker as it is for the listeners. So, yeah, just appreciate you giving me the the room and the space here, man. I appreciate love you, brother. It's good stuff. Well, hey, thank you everybody so much for joining us today and sharing your journey with us, um, Tim. It's been an honor to have you on the show. And thank you all for turning into this episode of Trailblazers. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and stay tuned for more inspiring stories of men making a difference in the world. Remember, you too can be a trailblazer in your own way. Until next time, keep blazing your trail.